So we began a series in Proverbs last Sunday, introduced the book. We're going to continue to drive into it. I said Proverbs. I think if you look at it, there's at least 100 different topics it covers. But you can make three big groupings. It deals with relationships, deals with warnings, and deals with your ambitions. So we're going to try to cover a little bit on each of those. And what Proverbs does for a New Testament believer is this. Um, You get saved, and that's awesome, but you still need wisdom. There are plenty of people that are saved that are living unwise lives. So wisdom partners with us and says, here's how you stop destroying your life. Quit doing that stuff. Start doing that. Doesn't mean life's not going to be suffering or life's not going to be, you know, perfect. It's not a get out of jail free card, but it's quit adding fuel to suffering. So it's brilliant. So today we're going to jump into marriage. Lots and lots of wisdom on marriage in here. In fact, I'm going to have to divide this into two parts, but I've been through Proverbs and uh, I'll actually read it all in one sitting, just read the whole book. And I'll take out everything that there is in Proverbs that deals with marriage, deals with husbands and wives. And if I took all that, just, just Proverbs wisdom and condensed it down and summarized it, here's my sentence. It says, marriage is an emotional, covenantal partnership built on trust and doing good. So that's the, if you want to sum up Proverbs in one sentence, it's wisdom on marriage, that would be my sentence. Marriage is an emotional, covenantal partnership built on trust and doing good. So we're just going to take the first three of those pieces and walk through them. So number one, and this one is huge. Like, I can't tell you how huge it is. As a believer, if you don't get this one, you don't understand marriage. So number one is, it's covenantal. Did I tell you how huge this is? This is huge. Covenantal is it as a believer. So I talked to the young adult class We have it on Thursday night here. They kind of meet socially distant outside on the lawn. And great group, man, phenomenal group of young adults that love Jesus and are passionate about his kingdom. And I said this, I said, I think there are three main views of marriage that are all kind of mixed together. The first view of marriage is this. It's what I call the modern view, and I would say it's selfish, so the modern view, the selfish view of marriage is this, it's, it's what's in it for me. Will she satisfy me physically, emotionally, maritally? Will he satisfy me? Will he meet all my needs? Financially, are we gonna be okay, right? It's, it's all about kind of me, how do I fit into this? Will I be happy in this marriage? Now, if that's the modern view of marriage, me, does it satisfy me, does it make me happy, What happens in a marriage if it no longer satisfies you or no longer makes you happy? Well, you check out. I'm out of here, 
right? He didn't meet my needs. She didn't meet my needs. We weren't happy together. We, whatever excuse you want to use because it's the modern view. So if the modern view is my personal satisfaction, then the once that doesn't happen, you just say, I'm, I'm gone. I'm out. So that's number one. Number two, not modern, ancient. The ancient view of marriage was status. So it was families would look at each other and they would say, hey, we are the kind of families that should get married. So we're going to maintain our standing in our culture. We're going to build that standing in our culture. So let's have your child marry my child. Let's arrange this thing because it's about status. It's arranged. You still see these kind of marriages um, in Africa, in India, in Asia, in the Middle East. They're still arranged marriages. And a lot of times what happens in an ancient marriage is this. There's not emotion to it. There's not personal satisfaction to it. It's about status, and, and that's all that matters. But what happens often in those marriages is this. One or both of the people will seek their satisfaction somewhere else because, they're not, because this was arranged. We didn't even know each other when we got married. We didn't even like each other, but because of status and family pressure, we're gonna stay together. Because of all that pressure, then they'll start looking for satisfaction outside of their marriage relationship. And if you can look at those cultures deep enough, there's a ton of that that happens. Um, You go back in time to Greece. We have a lot of information about Greece. So Greece 2,000 years ago, it was, was, this was common. One man would control three or four women, none of them that he was committed to. He just would use them for whatever he wanted. So I have a quote from the New Bible Commentary. And the New Bible Commentary says this about a Greek wedding 2,000 years ago. Quote, I'm quoting the New Bible Commentary. Quote, it was traditional on the wedding day to declare to the bride that when, not if, when her husband committed adultery with a prostitute or a woman of easy virtue, it was not a sign that he did not love her but simply a way of gratifying his passions, end quote. On her wedding day, could you imagine me doing that? Like right in the middle of a wedding, just saying, hey, time out here. Uh, sweetie, here's what's gonna happen. Man, I'd be killed. A dad would come out of the front row and take me out. I've got three daughters. I would kill that dude. Like that's insanity, right? It's crazy. It's why if you look at history, Women were often the first in an ancient culture that would flock to church because it elevated their role. They weren't just a boy toy, but they were equal partners in building the kingdom of God, right? So ancient marriage, not very good. Modern, you're out of it's tough. Ancient, ah, no joy, no love there. It was just status. And that brings us to the third definition of marriage. And it's the biblical one. And I say it's a covenant and it's secure. So here's what a covenant is. If you look at Proverbs 2.17, it actually talks about someone who is not keeping the covenant and says this, she forgets the covenant of her God. And it's speaking about marriage. So this is a person who forgets this importance of the covenant that she made when she married her husband and she moves out from it. So if you look at the whole Bible, and I don't have time to do that right now, but when you look at the covenant of marriage, here's what it is in the Bible. It's two people 
that agree to work for the future glory of their spouse. So it's two believers that they see something in one another and they say, I see a spark in you. I know you're not perfect. I know that we're gonna have trouble. I'm going in eyes wide open, but I see a future glory in you. And I wanna partake in seeing that glory revealed in you as we partner together before Jesus and walk this thing out. It's amazing. To me, that is a mature understanding of the Bible and a mature understanding of what marriage is. It's a covenant of two people that covenant for the future glory of them together as they walk this thing out. So talking to the young adults, I told them this. I've seen in 15 years of ministry, a shift when I do weddings. And when I first started doing weddings, the vow was just a traditional vow. But maybe 10 years ago, it shifted from the traditional vow to people saying, I want to write my own vows. And there's nothing wrong with that, except when the vows are written, very modern. So like I'll do a wedding and they'll do their vows and I'm sitting there listening to it. I'm like, oh my goodness, that's missed what a biblical covenant of marriage is. Because it's like, I really, 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 really like you. And you're just so perfect. You're perfect in every way. I want to stop him right then and say, no, she is not. She will sin. What are you going to do then? Right? And so these vows are just, they make me want, like, I don't cry at weddings very often because I'm doing them. And that would be really awkward. Like, these two are not going to make it, man. It would just be really bad. But with these vows, sometimes I just either want to scream at them or just start crying because they've missed the covenant and they've gone modern, fully modern we got to get back to what a covenant is. I like the old traditional vows because if you listen to them carefully, it's future glory, right? I'm with you for better, for worse, for rich, for, bo- for if you're poor, right? It's all that for better, for worse, for rich, for poor, in health and in sickness. It's I am covenanting with you for a future glory. And we've even changed the traditional one. Now it's like, um, as long as we both shall live, it's not the way the old one was. It was until death separates us. I stick with death. I'm like until cancer grabs my soul and crushes me, until the plague ruins me and I'm a puddle on the ground. I am covenanting with you because that brings security. The biblical covenant of marriage is, doesn't matter. I've seen a future glory in you and it doesn't matter hell or high water. I'm covenanting before God to participate in seeing as much of that glory revealed as long as my earthly existence is here. Man, that's brilliant. It's brilliant. It gets rid of all this nutty stuff about, ah, my soulmate. There's no soulmate in the Bible. If you're waiting for a soulmate, you will find him or her right next to an oopaloopa on a unicorn. Good luck with that. It's, no, I see something in you. And it's brilliant. But I know with Jesus, it can be even more brilliant. It's so safe. There's no fear of divorce. There's no fear of checking out. It's two imperfect people that know together we can move toward Christ in this thing, celebrating each other loving each other, exhorting each other, encouraging each other without the fear of, uh uh-oh, he's gonna scare me off. 
Uh Uh-oh, that'll ruin her. No, it's naked and open, Genesis 2, the way it's supposed to be. I can tell you anything because it won't scare you off. And you've covenanted with me to move forward to glory. Brilliant. It's a covenant, number one. Covenant. You have, before God, covenanted to see as much glory revealed in your spouse as possible in this life. Number two, it's a partnership. So I'll just read a couple. Proverbs 1.8. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching. Chapter 6, verse 20. My son, keep your father's commandment and forsake not your mother's teaching. You can go to the last chapter, chapter 31. Verse 16 says this. She, this wife, considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. Or skip down. Verse 24, she makes linen garments and sells them. She delivers sashes to the merchant. That's just a sampling. But what you see is this. You see, there's partnership. You have chapter 31, a wife who's doing business, right? She considers a field. She's out on uh, Zillow and she says, hey, that's a great deal on a piece of property. She buys it. She converts it into a vineyard with, the fruit of, with her own money is what it's saying right there. That's brilliant. She runs a garment factory. She makes garments and then sells them. Okay, brilliant. It's a partnership. When you get married, you're not roommates. You're partners. And sometimes I think there's this thinking that the Bible says dads are supposed to go out and make the money while moms stay at home and raise the kids. But what did we just read? We actually read the opposite. I did that on purpose. There's tons of texts about men doing business, and we'll get to that when it comes to money. But chapter 31 is a woman who's doing business. I think it's awesome when a husband and wife are teamed up together and they have a family business. It's brilliant. It's Ecclesiastes 4. Two are better than one. Right? Parenting. It's not, hey, it's the woman's job to raise the kids and dad just gets to do what he wants, do his hobbies. Two texts. Dad's instruction, mother's, you know, commands, right? Both of those are saying dad and mom are involved. And I'm telling you, that's so important. We need each other. There is a balance in that partnership, especially when it comes to raising kids. I'll give you exhibit A, me. So uh, before we had our first baby, I was reading this book. And this book was all about tactile stimulation. And what it said was this, that babies for the first 18 months primarily learn through what they feel. That you have more nerve endings in your skin than anywhere else in your body. So children, when they're, when they're little, they don't learn through talking to them so much or through eyesight or hearing. Their brain develops by touching things. That's why they're always grabbing and touching That's why everything goes from their hand to their mouth because the mouth has the most senses in it. I'm trying to understand this thing with my mouth. So they said tactile stimulation 
in infants is massively important. You need to stimulate them with feeling and senses. And they said, the mistake parents make is this. They want to protect their children and wrap them in these cozy little environments, but it's the worst thing you can do for their brain. Like, they need tactile stimulation. So we bring home Carissa. And Carissa's put in this nice, soft, 100% Egyptian cotton onesie. And she's tucked into her crib with this little safety perimeter in it and um, cashmere sweaters and uh, fleece, everything, right? It's all soft. I'm like, no way, sweetie, we cannot do that. I'm gonna go down right now and I'm going to make a wool garment for her that's itchy and scratchy. And my wife is like, no, no, you're not doing that. I said, okay, minimally, we have to put straw in her crib. Like she will rest in straw. I said, I have the Bible on my side here. Where was Jesus laid when he was born? Okay, yeah, all right. (laughs) I need my wife. I need my wife because she balances out that part of me. You need that. I have another study that says, uh, they studied four-year-old kids. And what they found was that four-year-old children that had been raised by a mom and dad had much better balance than a four-year-old child that had just been raised by his mother. Can you guess why? Yeah, dads drop their kids all the time. It's like, it's like survival. They have to learn to like land on their feet like a cat. So it, they need that. Like I, my kids need my wrestling, right? I need to go wrestle with them. My wife was always like, someone will be crying in five minutes. I'm like, it won't take five minutes. It'll take two minutes and someone will be crying. Probably me now because of my back. I'm like, ow. We need each other. We balance each other. And what Proverbs is saying is it's partnership. It's partnership. I have a good friend who is a fifth grade teacher, and he's like the only guy teacher. And he said this to me. He said, Matt, here's the problem with what's happening right now. He said, kids tragically are being raised by only their mom. And they meet their first real man when they're 18 years old, when they get their first job. And they can't handle it, and they quit. They're like, he was mean to me. And I'll say, well, why, why was he mean to you? He kept telling me what to do. Yeah, he's your boss, man. But they haven't met like a man yet. He goes, it's tragic. It's the Bible balances that. You need mom, and you need dad. You need mom's instruction with all of its force, and you need mom's nurturing with all of its care. You need both of those. It's this brilliant, incredible, beautiful partnership. And if you're a single mom, I was raised by a single mom. My heart goes out to you. She did everything she could. She let us ride crazy motorcycles and and she just kind of like, okay, your boys do what you're gonna do. Like she did give us a lot of leeway there. And we wanna fill in that gap with our kids wing and with middle school and high school. And we're trying to do a boxcar derby and we'll see if we can do that. We're trying to do it in June. We'll see if that's possible, but filling in those gaps for you. and, And my heart goes out, no doubt. Marriage is supposed to be this brilliant partnership. So how do you grow as partners? There's a Hebrew word. It's in Song of Solomon, chapter one, verse two. And it's this word that's translated dode. And one translation put it like this. It's the intermingling of souls. I love that. That what happens in a marriage is there's this love that you almost become indistinguishable from each other. That's how close the partnership's supposed to become. Like, brilliant. Um, It's where you could finish each other's sentences, but you choose not to. 
Even though you've heard the story 30 times, you choose to hear it again. You choose not to finish the sentence. It's that, part, it's that beautiful, brilliant partnership. So I had this dream that Charity and I will sit on a porch sipping iced tea and yelling at cars to slow down. But if I'm not moving toward that partnership now, it won't happen. I have this dream that we'll invite over our grandkids and feed them a ton of sugar and then send them home as revenge. But if not working on that partnership right now, yeah, it's not gonna happen, right? So it's, you have to be growing in this thing, okay? So that's, that's why covenant is so important. It's, hey, I realize neither of us are perfect, but your future glory is worth it. And here's where my wife is really good for me. I am a super good single task guy. Like multitasking for me, here's what it means. I'm gonna mess up a lot of things at once. I don't multitask. I am singly focused, which makes me have blind spots. And so my wife was really good about, hey, future, what's our trajectory? Where are we headed? What's happening? And I need her on that. So we started taking these walks without kids. Like we've taken walks for a long time with our kids, but you don't end up actually talking. You end up parenting the whole time. So now it's just me and her taking a walk. And we just started this. And it's in those walks that we're saying, okay, where are we at? How are we doing? How's our partnership? And it's out of these conversations that she's like, Elijah needs more help on math. Well, that's my strong suit. I'm an engineer. So now I've taken over Elijah's math and I'm actually enjoying it with him. I had a little bit of straightening out with him, but now he's starting to just click and it's helping and it's beautiful. That's what you have to be working on. Saying every day, really, I'm a partner with him, a partner with her, not a roommate, a partner. All right, so it's covenantal. It's partnership, and then it's emotional. So check this text out. Marriage is supposed to be emotionally explosive. This is chapter five, and I'm only reading a little bit of this. There's actually much more to it. It's a fascinating metaphor about um, sewage water versus good water. It's fascinating, but here's the part I'm gonna read. Verse 18, Solomon is giving advice to his son on marriage. Let your fountain be blessed. This has a big connotation to it. I don't wanna jump into it. And rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breast fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. How about that text? So there's this idea that the ancients had loveless marriages, not the Hebrews, no way. They were like, hey, throw down. Read the book of, Song of Solomon. I mean, serious. So here's what, here's what Solomon says. He says, rejoice in the wife of your youth. Grow together, rejoice. Here's something I'd never seen before in that. So I grabbed that word rejoice and I looked at it in the Hebrew. I didn't know this before. The Hebrew for rejoice there is an imperative. An imperative means it's a command. So it's not, hey, rejoice because your wife is getting an A plus in everything you're asking her to do. She washed the dishes, she cooked me a good meal, so I'm rejoicing. That's not it at all. 
It's not because of how she's doing. Rather, it's a command husband. You are choosing, no matter what your wife is doing, no matter if she's getting an A plus in your mind or not, you are choosing to rejoice in her. Well, how do you do that? I'll give you one way. Appreciation. You're appreciating what she is doing, okay? And my marriage is not immune to that. Where you start to get to a certain spot where you forget. I'll give you my maybe funniest, hopefully funniest illustration. This was a couple years ago. Gardening has always been my thing. I do the garden. Um, My wife doesn't show up in the garden until August. That's when she gets in the garden. So it's been my thing. I do the garden. And that's fine. I'll do the garden. Um, And I have a very probably unique perspective on gardening. Um, It's survival of the fittest. So I plant my veggies. I will weed it three times. And then it's good luck. If you can't beat a weed at that point, then I don't want to eat your veggies. You're weak. I want strong veggies. So survival of the fittest, that's my thing. Weed it three times and then let it go jungle and find find the stuff in there. Well, this particular year, it didn't work out very well, and I'd forgotten to weed it, so it, it didn't produce anything. So come August, my wife is like, hey, what happened to the garden? And I said, well, I didn't weed it this year. And she looked at me and goes, you never weed the garden. I was like, oh, oh, what did you say? You have no idea. You're never, like, I was just, I was amped. It was the lack of understanding of everything I'd been doing for 10 years down there because she shows up in August. But oh, I do that to her all the time. I don't realize how much she does every day in our house, right? She'll tell me if I'll ask her. I got up, I did the dishes, I swept the floor, I cleaned up the bathroom, I woke up the kids, I gave a bath to three of the kids, I cleaned up the tidal wave of water from bathing the three kids. I did a load of laundry. I folded all the towels. I did another load of dishes. I broke up three fights. I MMA'd a third fight. And then I made breakfast. I'm like, gee whiz, you're doing a lot. We need to rejoice in our spouses. And the best way of doing that is appreciating. Like just telling them, you are awesome. Wow, maybe some of us, we need to begin our days by praying to Jesus and saying, remind me how awesome my spouse is. Remind me how good she is so that throughout the day, I'm rejoicing in what he and what she does. Fit us together in that partnership so that we do get double for our work so that there is this appreciation that just absolutely overflows in our life. Rejoice. How about verse 19? Let her breast fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Like that's PG-13 right there. So what does that mean? It means daytime friends, nighttime lovers. And if you're daytime friends, you will be nighttime lovers. And the word delight is actually not even in the Hebrew. It's really just, be full of her breasts at all times. And there's a context to this. You can back up and read the whole thing. What it's saying is this, don't find your satisfaction 
in any other source than your wife. Physically, emotionally, intellectually, don't find your satisfaction anywhere else but in your spouse. That's the context of this. I don't know why they decided to add delight, but it shouldn't be in there. She is to be your satisfaction. And it says, be intoxicated always in her love. It's the Hebrew tizia, which literally, it doesn't mean drunk. It literally means to stagger. Be staggered by her. Like when you see her, you're just like, ah, your knees get weak. It's passion. Have a passion for your wife. Well, Matt, I'm just not very passionate. You know, I've had people say that to me, and I don't believe it. Everybody has a passion for something. Sometimes I don't understand what their passion is. Like, I collect G.I. Joe action figures from the 1980s, and they're really passionate about it, and they will tell you all about it, or Bunko, whatever it is. I don't understand it, but they have a passion for something. It needs to be redirected, the Bible would say, for your spouse. You gotta redirect it. And if you have to, man, drink a quad shot on your way home, or a Rebel, or a Red Bull, or all three. I don't care. We're supposed to be passionate. Matt, I'm telling you, it's just not there. Well, there is a time, no doubt, to raise your hand and say, something's broken right now. I need help. And that's what counseling, and we do counseling here. So there is a point to do that, no doubt. But I think you can actually evaluate your own heart because Jesus says this, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Your time, your talents, your thinking, your energy, where's all that treasure going? Is it to restore that 55 Chevy or your golf game or your career or ministry? Because your heart is gonna follow your treasure and your passions come out of your heart. And then out of your heart, you start speaking. Out of the well of the heart, the mouth speaks. What do you talk about all the time? That's what your passion is. And maybe you need to, maybe we need to start saying, I need to pray that Jesus helps me treasure my spouse again. That I start talking about her and thinking about her and putting effort into her because a killer, a killer of passion is indifference. When your spouse is talking to you and you're just indifferent to it, you're just like, meh. That's how you kill, that's how you kill passion in marriages. I learned this in counseling. So I had this couple in and I could not figure out what was wrong. The wife was the one that wanted to do counseling, which is very often the case. So I have both of them in there. I'm talking through things. I'm asking questions. I'm like, the the husband seems brilliant. I'm like, well, is he a good provider? Great provider. Does he help with the kids? He is the best dad in the world. Well, does he help around the house? He does the dishes. He cooks a lot. I mean, he's amazing. I'm like, goodness gracious, what in the world? Why are you complaining? So I thought, well, maybe he's got a temper. So I said, well, do you have a temper? And the husband's like, no, man, I'm the most even person in the world. I never get upset. And right then, I saw the wife's eyes just open. And she said this, I wish you'd get mad. I'm like, well, that's a first. I've never heard that before. And she said this, because then I would know you cared. Right now, you don't care about anything. And that was the problem. It was indifference. Just, meh, no passion. It killed their marriage. I couldn't help them, actually. Indifference will kill a marriage. When you just don't care. Passion 
They're supposed to be emotionally explosive. That's why Proverbs 5 is so brilliant. And some of us need to reignite that, start putting treasure back into that relationship, into our spouses to get passion back up. And we'll talk more about that next time we talk about this. So let me conclude like this. Proverbs 2.17 says, when you get married, it's a covenant before God. And if you study something, and I advise it, the group that has the lowest divorce rate in America, it's people that practice their faith, not profess it, not say I'm a Christian, not answer a survey I'm a Christian, the people that are in church, they're praying, they're reading their Bibles, they're in home groups, they're talking about this thing. That's it. They're the ones that have the lowest. Because ultimately, the Bible says, we're to look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. That when it talks about marriage in the New Testament, Ephesians chapter five, it just ends by saying, hey, by the way, this whole thing has nothing to do with you at all. It has everything to do with Jesus and the church. So why would it be practicers that have the lowest divorce rate in the world? Let me give you three reasons why. Number one, access to the creator. So I did a wedding on uh, Friday and it was uh, on the side of Mount Shasta. It was the shortest wedding I've ever done and probably the prettiest location of a wedding I've ever done. And I will tell couples either before or in the ceremony, I'll say this, listen, study and read Isaiah 40, 31. They that wait on the Lord will renew their strength. They'll mount up with wings like eagles. They'll run and not grow weary. They'll walk and not faint. If you want your marriage to have strength, to have vision like an eagle, creativity, all that cool stuff. If you want it to not faint, not grow weary, get around her creator. Get around his creator. Marriage books are great and they're awesome, but it was written about another spouse. You can go directly and access your wife's creator, your husband's creator. Do you pray? Are you praying in the morning? God, give me passion creativity. Give me an understanding of marriage because marriage is God's idea. We should probably be going to him, right? It'd be like this maybe. This might be a really dry year. Pray about that. So I've been checking my sprinklers and we had a tree fall down. It hit our deck and did a bunch of damage and ruined a sprinkler head. And I'm trying to figure out my sprinkler system right now. And you could have a perfect sprinkler. I've got green grass right now. You can have a perfect sprinkler system, perfect design, perfect everything, like on the, on the outside, just looks great. But if that sprinkler system is not connected to a deep well of water, come summer, come hot times, come hard times, it'll die. I think sometimes people have the perfect marriage. They've got it all set out. It looks green and stuff, but it's not connected to the well. And when hard times come, they're out. See, you and I have to be connected to our creator, that's why covenant is so important, that we've covenanted together through hell or high water, no matter what or what happens, we are for the future glory of our spouses and we're in this and we're humble about it and we understand how to move forward. I think that's why you're connected to your, their creator. Number two, I think we get grace. 
We should at least. We're two imperfect people that have been thrown together in the world's first reality show started in Genesis chapter two. And you gotta walk this thing out with different everything and learn how to fit together and to pursue the future glory of one another. Brilliant. And it takes a lot of grace. It takes a lot of forgiveness. It takes a lot of, stop looking in the rearview mirror and start looking in through the windshield, forgetting those things that lay behind. We're supposed to get grace. And then thirdly and lastly, we learn selflessness from Jesus, who said it's better to give than receive. Who said, listen, if you wanna be over everybody, learn to be the servant of all. Lay down your life. If you wanna find your life, don't go, hey, I gotta get my thing. It's, no, lay down your life. Like those, I tell people every wedding, the big killer of marriage is selfishness. The way to cure it is serving. That, that to me, if you're not selfish and you're serving your spouse, you are gonna have a throw down marriage. And people that practice their faith, get those three things. We're connected to the source. We got grace. And we understand how important service is. So I don't know where your marriage is right now, but we get to be connected to our source. That you can take communion, go to the table, eat and drink and say, reconnect me. My marriage is drying up. My strength is drying up. I'm growing weary and faint. Okay, take and eat. That Jesus says, Matthew 6, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Be connected to me. And I'm gonna add all these other things to you. And so we get to do that right now. So if you have communion, grab it. If you're with your spouse, Maybe hold hands and think this through as you take this and and remember the covenantal partnership with emotional explosiveness that Proverbs talks about marriage. I'm gonna grab mine. Jesus, I pray. husbands that they would love and cherish their wives that they would esteem them better than themselves that they'd be the nail pierced servant leaders like you that none of us got married to get a wife we got married to give ourselves to our wives We need to be connected to you to do that. That's not normal for wives this day. I pray that they would respect their husbands, that they would be praying for and moving for the future glory of their husbands, seeing as much of that as possible manifested in this lifetime. And we need you for that. So as we remember you, the source, the one that came to a woman at a well who was failing miserably at marriage, you said, ask of me and I'll give you water that if you drink of this, 
you'll never thirst again. And there's some dry marriages right now that need that water. We all need that. We all need to stay connected to you. And so as we eat in remembrance of your life, your death, your resurrection, and your ascension, would you reconnect our hearts to you? May we get in that flow that the Father has loved you and you've loved us. Therefore, we're able to love our spouses. May we get in that flow. So let's take and let's eat. You took the cup. The cup of forgiveness. So many marriages pack the bags of shame and guilt and failing and they drag it with them everywhere they go. And they need your blood to dissolve those bonds in their heart so they can move forward. Proverbs 14 says, the path of the righteous grows brighter and brighter until that day that we need to get rid of all the junk that darkens our days. And oh, how we need you for that. So even today as we drink, I pray that you'd be setting marriages free from the past that no longer needs to be rehashed. That we've been forgiven just like our spouse has been forgiven. And we can move forward toward you by your strength. So we drink of your great forgiveness this day. Let's drink. Amen. God bless you guys.